And we are towards the end of January of 2022. This is another episode of Here in the Other podcast of the Germanic American Institute. This is the podcast of the Germanic American Institute. Welcome. Where Germanic-speaking European countries, Germany, Deutschland, Deutschland. Austria, Österreich, Switzerland, Schweiz, blend with the Midwestern United States. We are here and there, and we invite you to come along on the journey. And it is here and there, and of course I do have the pleasure to welcome back the sidekick, actually uh, number one as well, not even number two. Audra, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing great, yeah. Uh, sidekick? Okay, yeah. <laughs> no, you're far beyond sidekick. You're sort of the, the Robin to the Batman. Well, maybe that's a bad analogy, I don't know. But so with, still the sidekick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> maybe we should re-record this. No, we are going to continue to run. So, Fortnite in History, <laughs> which, which is our new segment where we usually start the podcast now in our new version of actually composing and constructing the podcast. What were your experiences the first time around? Did you have fun? I had so much fun. It was nice just to riff for a while and... I'm learning. I'm learning a lot by doing this. So it's, and, I, hope, yeah. I hope everyone else is too. And that's the interesting idea, right? Just to look a little bit back into history. I mean, we have um, more than a thousand years to choose from, so we definitely won't run out of content. So yeah. let's uh, dive into it. This fortnight in history. I'm going to just kick it off and then hand it off to Audra and we're just going to ping pong back and forth. So for the first one, I just invite you to get the sabers, the horses and the ceremonial garbs out the closet because this one sounds a bit like a movie script. We're going back to uh, January 18th of 1701. Frederick of Prussia had rather grand ambitions like any other royalty in Europe and also much like any other monarch during that time. He maintained a splendid court and a rather oversized army, overproportioned army, considering the territory that he actually oversaw. But of course, never let limitations of borders and the interests of other nations get in the way of your own dreams and ambitions. So for Frederick, those dreams were to gain status in the Netherlands, which he could then, there was the thought, pass on to his descendants. However, it takes two to tango, and his military advances didn't immediately bear the fruits of his soldiers' labor, and Frederick subsequently became a little bit frustrated and impatient. Enter Austria and Prussia. Both nations signed a secret treaty, because nothing like secrecy, opening the path for Frederick to crown himself the King of Prussia. The self-crowning took place on January 18th, 1701. Now, this was composed to be a success for both parties. Frederick became king and the Austrian Habsburg Empire secured Prussian aid of 8,000 troops in addition to its already present commitments. And this was really just a mitigating strategy for the potential war against the French over the succession of the Spanish throne. I mean, can we throw all of Europe in it? This is, <laughs> this is, this is crazy. I honestly, when I, when I look at some of that uh, late medieval 17th, 16th, 18th century uh, sort of concoction that is Europe and royalty and monarchs and trying to figure out who with whom and how and where, I don't understand how they kept it all straight. No, and that everyone was related to, like, it's just, it's, it's a bit too messy for my liking, but 
we are here today, so something must have worked, I guess. <laughs> so, something did, and uh, considering that the, the circumstances back then, I think today we actually have it really good, uh, particularly in comparison. But I honestly, I don't understand how who orchestrated all this and how much time and mental effort and strategic effort went into planning this because it, it wasn't just marriages i mean those marriages were arranged those those wars were arranged they were all they were all purpose-driven it must have taken an unreasonable amount of time but also at the same time strategic foresight to actually do all do all this which is just crazy to me Anyways, the makings of a great movie script there with self-crowning because nothing says success like putting the crown on your own head, right? Right, the audacity to put the <laughs> crown on your own head. I, <laughs> jeez. All right, so well, over to you, Audra, what you got? Well, first up for on my docket, I suppose, um, January 27th every year is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Um, the day is set to honor the six million Jewish victims and the millions of other victims uh, of Nazism. The day is supported by a lot of educational programming and awareness so that we can talk about genocide and prevent it in the future. Um, the United Nations General Assembly designated January 27th uh, as it is the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz in 1945. So the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum has some really great educational resources and videos to learn about what happened. And just because it's not International Holocaust Remembrance Day doesn't mean you can't take some time to continue educating yourself about about it. And especially with anti-Semitism and all these ugly comparatives going on right now that we're seeing, um, it's, it's, a, it's a good time to keep educating. And yes, really, you can't compare the Holocaust to anything that is happening right now. So. Yeah, it's, it's also uh, when you get back to Europe, once travel truly fully resumes, uh, there are, of course, museums in, in just almost every largest city. And the one that particularly uh, stuck in mind for me was the museum in Prague, actually, which is adjacent to an old cemetery that remained untouched. You can tour the cemetery, you can tour the, the uh, museum, of course. It's... Uh, depressing let's just put it this way it really shows what humans are capable of and then of course if you truly have time and interest and it's such an emotional juxtaposition really you can tour essentially a concentration camp which in and of itself, itself just feels wrong to tour something where such uh, genocide has taken place but at the same time it is a very sober reminder again as to what has taken place and that those atrocities just cannot be denied. So once you make it to Munich, for instance, head on over to Dachau and, and just get the impression of what really took place because unfortunately those who survived are slowly leaving us. And the only way to keep the stories is through museums and through actually going there yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah, going from one war to the next, right? Um, I'm stepping in front of World War II, more towards World War One. So I'm flying onward, if you will, to January 19th of 1915. And what we nowadays see as the Goodyear blimp over NASCAR races and state fairs and whatnot has actually historic significance beyond the fabled Hindenburg. On the morning of January 19th, 1915, Two German Zeppelin airships, the L3 
and L4 took off from Fuhrspittel in Germany. Each aircraft had about 30 hours worth of fuel and eight bombs as well as 25 incendiary devices and they were heading towards Britain, although very, very slowly. The permission to engage was given by Emperor William II with the orders to bomb military and industrial buildings, but to spare targets in London because, of course, he was related to the royal, fa royal family and didn't want to risk any harm to them. How Jeez. courteous. <laughs> Again, everyone's related. It's, it's, all, it's all interconnected, man. It's absolutely insane. But I know that you have something loaded and then I hopefully end on a little bit of a higher note. <laughs> yes. So moving on to January 31st, uh, in 1797, Franz Schubert was born. Um, just a famous Austrian composer, really. Um, his Indeed. father was a schoolmaster and ultimately ended up being Franz's first music teacher um, with his first instrument being the viola. Um, he later learned organ and music theory from the church organist and he kind of had a, I mean, not a slow start, but he was a shy guy. That was kind of a part of his character. And I think because of his like, like his dad was a schoolmaster and his mother was a like domestic, like service worker. So he wasn't exactly of the highest standing. So he was kind of a shy guy, kind of quiet, but eventually with the urging of his friends, he uh, got his work out there and he, uh, by, or what was it? It was March 1st in 1818. Uh, his, the first public performance of one of his pieces happened, the Italian Overture in C minor. Um, and that happened in Vienna. So he was 21 at the time. Yeah, but, so it's start. like, he didn't really have a slow start. Like he was 21, but uh, he did end up having a fairly short life um, as he did pass at 31 years old after, um, developing typhoid fever as a result of drinking some tainted water which is so awful <laughs> like that's just <laughs> like even... a casual way to go um but he did a lot of amazing works in his life um if you're not familiar with schubert his most famous work is arguably ave maria um but he did compose over 600 pieces of all genres of music in his lifetime that is quite the catalog of work I'll keep it in the same vein here. January 27th, 1756. We're still talking music. We're still talking composers. And if you're following us on Instagram, you may have actually caught the post. If not, just head on over to Instagram and type in in the search bar GAI House. That's G-A-I-H-A-U-S, sort of German spelling. And you'll find that post. January 27th was the birth of Wolfel, which is our term of endearment for the often copied but never replicated Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Now, Wolfgang, or as he also has been immortalized by Austrian pop star Falco as Amadeus, was born in Salzburg. His birth house in the Getreidegasse is one of the main tourist destinations in Salzburg, and some of you probably have already been there. And if not, add it to your itinerary when you get back to Austria. Salzburg in and of itself is magnificent. Yes, you can tour the meadows of the sound of music, but then head on back into uh, town and, and 
do something such as visiting Heidegger. Now, from the drawer of rather uncommon uncommon knowledge, he was actually baptized as, and hold on to your seats on that one, Johannes Chrysostomus Wolfgangus Theopolis Mozart, obviously heavily Latinized, and he actually referred to himself as Wolfgang Amadei, with an apostrophe over the E in Amadei, Mozart. He was the youngest of seven children, although five of his brothers and sisters died as infants, and he became known, of course, as the absolute child prodigy. There's some debate whether he composed his first piece at the age of four or five. However, once the pen hit the paper, he immediately whipped up three pieces within just a few weeks. Now, the argument, of course, is whether he composed and wrote or if he essentially played and his father then transcribed the notes, which is probably more realistic. Mozart rose to fame rather quickly, touring through Europe. It began in 1762, so when we do the math here, at the tender age of six, he played an exhibition at the court of Maximilian III in Munich, then moving on to the imperial courts in Vienna, and of course in Prague. Now, the family, quite entrepreneurially minded, saw the success of the tour and continued three and a half years, visiting almost all cities of rank and file. This means Munich, Paris, London, Amsterdam, Utrecht. Sounds like a fashion runway show. And while he was on the road, of course, he, I think, to stave off boredom, wrote his first symphony at the age of eight. And as you can probably imagine, traveling in the 70s, or 1770s, more accurately, wasn't exactly quick or overly luxurious. Yet, that didn't stop Mozart who continued touring, 1767 to A68 in Vienna, then 69 through 71 in Italy. He continued to feverishly compose, to perform, and live a fast-paced life. More about this in a second. Now, by all intents, Mozart was, of course, successful, famous, and a very well regarded composer, although a broke one. His salary, while employed in Salzburg, was 150 florins per year. Don't ask me what that is in dollars, but it's probably not a lot. And it also wasn't enough for young Mozart. He resigned in 1777 from Salzburg and continued to find commercial success while his father greased the wheels back in Salzburg and eventually getting an offer for young Wolfgang of 450 florins. Quite an increase. But it wasn't enough, because young Mozart, while traveling, took on debt. So he somehow had to pay that off. Enter Vienna, 1781. In 1782, he got married to the famous Constanze, his, I would say, most fervent supporter. And he continued to experience fame and fortune, and particularly the fortune, unfortunately. He didn't save a cent. See the pattern here? <laughs> then in the coming nine years, to wrap this up, from 1781 to 1790, Mozart's commercial success slowly waned, tapered off a little bit. The debts rose again, supported by loans from his Freemason brothers. And what does a broke composer do? You go back to the tried and true. You go on tour again. And that was unfortunately very short-lived. He died in his home on December 5th, 1791, at the, of course, much to young age of 35. Now, what's interesting is Mozart is described as a childhood smallpox survivor uh, with a remarkably small stature, very thin and pale, with a profusion of fine fair hair of which, of which he was rather vain. Now, the letter's description 
I suppose was rather well depicted by the 1984 Hollywood production of Amadeus. Tom Holtz played Wolfgang with his absolutely irritating laugh, and F. Murray Abraham played Antonio Salieri. The movie is based on some of Mozart's escapades. Of course, it is mostly fictional, although most of the music in the film, of course, is not. It's definitely worth watching, or perhaps if you have already seen it, probably to rewatch, because the movie Amadeus in itself claimed eight Academy Awards, from Best Picture to Best Actor to Best Costume Design, and of course, Best Sound. Now, what strikes me as interesting is Mozart had 35 years, wrote 800 pieces, and I would say hundreds of years later, still is unrivaled. Nobody even comes close. I mean, that's what happens, I guess, when you're writing symphonies at eight years old. When I was eight years old, I was struggling through piano lessons. So I, <laughs> it's, uh, I suppose, his natural progression. I mean, there's a reason his father once described him as the miracle which God let, born, uh, yes. let be born in Salzburg. So, Yeah, it's, it's still, you know, I, I would say it's incomprehensible, particularly for somebody without any skills in music whatsoever. I can hit one key on the piano and that's probably the wrong one. Um, and he just obviously is Mozart. And I think the, the key to success or the stipulation of success, if you will, is when you are known throughout time by one name. Like Michelangelo, for instance, right? Da Vinci. We would rarely say Leonardo da Vinci. We would uh, rarely say Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. We either say Amadeus because of the movie, I would say, or because of Falco, or we would just simply say Mozart and everybody globally knows exactly who's referred to. That, I think, is really the measure of success here, particularly hundreds of years later. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's a accurate assessment he is one of the greats yes he is uh that wraps our edition of this fortnight in history of course as always the disclaimer here is that there are thousands upon thousands of things and significant events and individuals that we can bake into this segment so if you have somebody you're particularly fond of for the next two weeks so leading from uh, february 1st through february 14th in that neighborhood um just email us. It's podcast at gimn.org. And with that being said, let's move on over to our interview. And before we dive into today's interview, allow me to introduce our guest. In-house, she is known as Frau Emily. She is the assistant director of the Kinderstube St. Paul. And before she got here, of course, she has German history, German roots. She spent time in Hamburg working as Fulbright English teaching assistant. She also taught junior high and high school German in Stillwater and at the kindergarten of the Twin Cities German Immersion School. You've heard her voice before on this cast, and with that, I get to welcome back a woman who enjoys gardening, watching shows about gardening, playing the violin, and grafting with her two children, Lucas and Annalise. This is our assistant director of the Kinderstube St. Paul at the GAI, Emily. Emily, how are you? 
I'm doing well. Thank you. It's good to see you. Even though it's just over Zoom, you are sitting at the GAI, just across from Kinderstube. Yes. Yep. Allow me to ask, how is Kinderstube going in those trying times? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I would say overall things have been quite positive for us. Um, we're open. We have kids in our classrooms. Uh, we are actually finishing up a quarantine, a session of quarantine over in Minneapolis right now. Um, but by tomorrow, uh, most of our students should be back. Um, and yeah, we've we've been plugging along. We um, we're back to pretty normal times in the classroom with the children. Um, we don't have small small pods um, of kids with dedicated teachers anymore. Um, we've made some other adjustments like having kids wear masks and things like that. Um, but yeah, other than that, it, we're back to usual business. Let's step back a couple of months, uh, perhaps a year. And I know that Kinderstube has moved on to uh, more distributed learning uh, via Zoom and what have you. How was that experience? And not just for the teachers, but also of course for the kids. What's, what's your summary here? Yeah, with, with kids doing distance learning, um, we did, uh, for a time, we, um, at the very beginning of the pandemic, we did distance learning for all of our students, and then we came back. So last winter, we had um, a month or two where we offered distance learning for a cohort of students who um, felt better staying home. And um, the way that that worked, we would, rather than trying to hold synchronous Zoom sessions for preschool, which as you can imagine is quite challenging with young children. Um, we would, uh, our teachers just did a beautiful job of recording activities, thinking of things that kids could do at home, um, science experiments with things they could find around the house, um, book read alouds, singing. So they would be pre-recorded um, little mini lesson sessions that the kids could watch at home um, with their family whenever it worked for them. And then we would also try to weave in some, you know, 15 minute live Zoom sessions um, so the kids could see each other. And those usually ended up being um, uh, show and tell with mm -hmm. stuffed animals or pets, really anything the teacher might mention, the kids would go run and find those things at home. And <laughs> so it, it gave us a cute little window into home life, I suppose. But, um, but yeah, the kids, um, Young children are, are just so adaptable and they, they were the reason that I think all of us adults stayed positive through all of it. it. It just, you know, they just go with whatever the situation is. Since those are in part pre-recorded segments, so essentially we keep them on hand, is this something you're going to keep in play for future reference uh, that is accessible, that is available through a perhaps a GEI Kinderstube library. Uh, what is the future vision on this? Yeah. So, well, a few things. Number one, um, we do have we do have um, you know all of our videos got uploaded into YouTube, and so really, actually, with this most recent um, need to quarantine for most of our students, since most students are unvaccinated um, and we're close contacts, we were able to use some of those um, older uh, activities that had been pre-recorded for the first day or two of, of this quarantine so that our teachers had a chance to, to pivot and make some new content. Um, so it's been useful just within our Kinderstube program at times. Um, it's also been useful for you know, families who might be interested in coming to our school and, and aren't, aren't always able to um, have an in-person tour. Tours are much more limited, of course, now. Um, 
And so we've been able to give people a little taste of what, what our school is like and who our teachers are um, by using some of those clips. Um, and then another really big thing, I mean, a, a new program came out of this pandemic. Um, we were able to get a really uh, wonderful grant um, and now have a, a separate program called Kinderstube German at Home, which is um, not meant for people that go to our school, but rather families who, who have young uh, preschool age children, um, ages three to six really, um, who would like to learn German and maybe don't live near to our school or you know, uh, weren't able to get into the preschool because of space constraints. So um, yeah, so the, some of the skills that we learned <laughs> during the pandemic um, recording have been able to be used for a new program and, and really like widen what we're able to do um, for early childhood age in the Twin Cities and beyond. So it's akin to German without borders, if you will. So the geographic bit, yeah. invitations <laughs> fell away. Reasonable German without borders. <laughs> um, when you when you look through your, so to speak, Rolodex of students, uh, that's a very antiquated term, isn't it? Um, yeah, but I like it. <laughs> through your email list of students, um, where do students hail from? Are they mostly local? Do you see people from or students, uh, kids, children? from across the country, perhaps uh, from other nations? For the Kinderstube German at Home program? Yes. You know, I I am not as connected to that to that program, to be honest. Um, I know that we certainly have some local kids um, who were interested and, you know, it's a, it's still a new program. So I think we, um, we started out almost with like some pilot uh, students um, and those are children of board members, even of the G Germanic American Institute and things like that. Um, but I know just personally, I've been, so I'm not a hundred percent sure how many people out of state there might be, but I do know that some people that have expressed interest to me and asked questions because I work at the preschool, um, have been families who have children that are going to the Twin Cities German Immersion School. So they have school-aged kids and then they have younger siblings that they know, you know, are going to be going to that school. So they want to get a head start with German, um, so, yeah, I mean, I think with each new, you know, every semester we have a new uh, session that starts mm -hmm. and, and the, the base is, is broadening. So, I mean, if anything, uh, it's good to know that it is available. Are there designated start times for classes or is it on a roll? How does that usually work? Yep, it's on a semester basis. And the, the, the newest semester um, entry point, if you will, was um, mid-January, actually. So that it just started um and i believe that there are two sessions each each school year so to speak um and then it kind of starts over so um those students that that joined in the fall are would would have begun their second semester of content and then people that want to join um mid-year would start from the beginning so it's just kind of a rolling um entry points and then there are some live sessions with those as well so kids that they get to do the content on their own time at home and then, um, and then throughout the semester, there are some live Zoom check-ins with a, a staff that we have so the kids can meet each other and try out their German. One of the things I've been quite curious about is, uh, and I talked with my dad about this, who still lives in Vienna. Uh, evidently, the University of Vienna ran some studies and conducted some psychological experiments and whatnot, and they believe to have found an uptick in depression and an uptick in general uh, mental health degradation with students who were, because of the pandemic, forced to go into distance learning. 
Is this something that uh, is perhaps more confined to uh, older kids? Uh, because I'm not seeing evidence for that at all as far as uh, university students are concerned. So I'm wondering if the same is perhaps true, that this type of uh, degradation, mental health challenges, uh, perhaps does not exist for younger kids. Have you seen any such evidence? Yeah, um, I mean, certainly I I, I, I couldn't give you any um, research statistic tidbits, but... We'll, but we'll just, take um, anecdotal, anecdotal evidence. <laughs> anecdotal evidence, like living, breathing evidence right in front of me. Um, I would say what we see, uh, we certainly are aware of the need, um, the, the need that, that, the increased need that students have to work on their social skills, social emotional skills. And that's been something that we um, really, when I give tours, I tell people we, we have two main focuses at Kinderstube Preschool. One is of course the German language and that's just, we live and breathe in it. We do our jobs in the, the language um, and that's how we teach it. And we have ways to do that um, more effectively for an immersion environment. But then the other piece is that we, we follow um, a social emotional learning curriculum and we did that before the pandemic even. Um, so, you know, it's uh, at the early childhood level, we're teaching um, how to identify our own feelings and how you, how you pick up on other people's feelings. Of course, we have challenges with that, with masks. You know, we, we have found, I mean, I really do think that our students are becoming experts at reading emotions from eyes <laughs> because that's what they can mm -hmm. see and also tone of voice and body language. So, you know, when we work with our, our kids were, um, as teachers, I think we're really trying to emphasize and um, yeah, just really like bring out the things that we can because we are, our mouths are covered with our masks. Um, but that's something, anyhow, that's something that we've been working on all along with our kids, but it, it just plays an even more important role, I think now. Um, another thing that we see Absolutely, as we, you know, as we're moving into now, this, this is the third school year that's been affected by the pandemic. Um, our newest students, and especially that are coming in, have not really had much socialization with age peers before they come to preschool, um, you know, even more than before the pandemic. And so we're seeing a lot of behaviors um, that you would expect more from, you know, a two-year-old maybe. I mean, I would say they, they feel like they're definitely a year or even two years behind social emotionally with certain things. Um, of course, individual children are all, you know, it's, it's a big variety, um, but we, that, that is the way in which teachers, um, a big way that teachers need to adapt. And I know it's the same, it's the same way um, in elementary school. And I think even middle school, uh, the teachers are feeling they're seeing different um, behaviors because kids haven't been able to learn in, in a typical social environment um, that we did pre-pandemic. So if you take sort of the 10 to 30,000 foot uh, view perspective, mm -hmm. what are the cornerstones of a social emotional curriculum? Um, in preschool, it's we we work on skills for learning. So we begin, you know, it's it's all articulated, and there's a scope and sequence, which is which is really like the biggest game changer. I think when we started using this, our teachers were always teaching these skills. That's what preschool is all about: getting ready to be in school and learning how to coexist in a group, um, learning how to, you know, develop interpersonal skills. But we we start with the foundational level of um, what skills do you need for learning? 
And then we move on to skills for empathy. And then we, beyond that, then we move on to more challenging things like how do you share and how do you deal with conflict? Um, without understanding what your own feelings are, it's very difficult to understand what someone else's feelings might be. And when you're at the preschool age, uh, you don't you don't come in understanding that other people have feelings. <laughs> you're totally focused on yourself. Um, and that's that's healthy and that's typical. And so we really the social emotional learning is is guiding children through and and you're really having a focus on those things that they are going to learn. Um, but without having a structured curriculum um, and teachers focusing on that and then also um, bringing the parents in and letting them know what we're working on and these are the ways they can practice it at home. Um, without that, you see huge variety in kids and, and the social emotional learning piece, like schools that adopt curriculums and really follow the scope and sequence and make sure that we're really focusing on things. They, you see in, in um, test scores and all the different ways we, we measure success uh, in schools that schools tend, students tend to perform better in schools that are doing this. So, so yeah, at the preschool level, it's, it's pretty basic focusing on attention. How do you hold attention? How do you remember things? Um, but it is, I will tell you, it is absolutely amazing. We see our students when, when they find they're in a difficult situation with a friend, they will go, oh, wait, and they walk over to the, the board and they pull down the little clipboard with the instructions of how do you share and they will literally teach each other. They'll go, oh, do you wanna do this, this, or this? And then when they do it in German, it's even better. It's like, okay, <laughs> that just made my month. I got stuck on a rather challenging concept, if you will, that you just casually threw in there as if it's the most logical and uh, <laughs> easy thing in the world. The concept of empathy, because yeah. when I look through how adults conduct themselves nowadays, empathy and compassion seem to be generally rather challenging concepts across, uh, I would almost say, the planet at this point in time. And now basically pushing it back all the way to preschool age, where the world is rather small, you know yourself and your immediate family, and particularly nowadays, uh, I would say the world is even smaller because of the limited interactions. How do you teach something like empathy, such a ginormous concept? Yeah. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it, it is a huge concept. And I think that's without the, without the building blocks, it's, it's too huge of a concept to introduce to a child. Um, if you start right with the whole concept, you know, with that big concept, intangible concept of empathy. But that's where you start at the, the basics. You start with what are feelings and let's let's talk about you know the basic feelings and giving some names then you um you have kids talk about well how do you know when you're, you you're angry or when do you get angry and you focus on you know the again the, the basic feelings um and you really have them look inward and and uh really get in tune with their bodies i mean that's a specific way you know facial expressions and how they feel on the inside. Um, and then week by week, we, we just kind of layer on top of that. And so then we start to look at pictures. We always have social pictures that the kids can look at and guess what the person in the picture is feeling and guess why they maybe feel that way based on you know clues that they see. Um, and then we have stories that we tell with the pictures. We have puppets that act out things. So there's a lot of repetition 
Um, and then once we feel like we've mastered identifying our own feelings and talking about them, that's when we move to um, looking at our friends, you know, and talking about what other people are feeling and, and really break down, you know, one person might feel angry in a certain situation and another person might feel sad and, you know, that's okay. So it's really just, um, again, breaking things down into really manageable pieces and making it relatable for a three, four or five-year-old, you know, um, and it is, I will say it's, it's amazing when you are focusing on, on what empathy is and breaking it down like that as an adult. I mean, I am sure that my colleagues, just like me, we go home and, you know, you, you look, you think about your own life and how you treat each other uh, a little bit differently. And sometimes uh, things that feel really complex can start to feel pretty simple. <laughs> the fixes come to you. You're like, wait, I learned something today with her social emotional time. Right. Um, yeah. There is a uh, therapist. I think she practiced in uh, Florida for many, many decades and she adopted some uh, of the psychological perspectives, if you will, and interaction perspectives uh, from researchers and created the feeling wheel. It's Gloria Wilcox, mm -hmm. uh, like 67 some whatever facets of feelings. And the reason why she actually developed that and then put it behind herself uh, and included some gamification was because she determined that adults have really significant issues in expressing actually what they feel like. And mm -hmm. I would anecdotally argue that we generally in the U.S. shy away from feelings. We don't want to talk about feelings. We don't want to necessarily express them because feelings are akin to vulnerability. Now, when we bring this back to preschool children and take into consideration that adults have issues expressing that, how do you go about kids expressing their emotions in a manner that they're conveyed so that the adult actually understands what the child is feeling. Mm -hmm. How do you go about that? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's, it can be challenging. Um, I think this is exactly one of the reasons that we, um, that we wanted to have a more, um, that we wanted some help, basically we wanted some tools of how to do this and how to talk about it. And I think you know, when you are teaching children about feelings and what they are and talking about them during a calm, when people are feeling calm, you know, during a circle time um, and with puppets and you're making it very accessible and relatable, um, that certainly gives both the teachers and the students tools to use later when there's more, you know, when there's bigger emotions going on. Um, but, you know, I, again, we do things in preschool when we're focusing on these things that can be extra challenging for young uh, humans. We use tools that any of us, if we're in tune with our feelings, use. I mean, sometimes if there's a, a conflict and somebody or both, both parties are feeling really big emotions, that's not the right time to talk about feelings. And often, and we, and every once in a while we make mistakes and we, we push maybe a little bit too hard and realize, whoops, I'm escalating and this is not helping. So having areas in the classroom um, where students can can kind of remove themselves when they feel that's what they need, you know, having a, um, and actually as we move further through the pandemic, uh, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had re removed a lot of items that we thought 
might not be the most hygienic <laughs> with with COVID, you know, like pillows and the kushel eke, like the, the little cuddly corner where you can snuggle up and read a book. Um, some of those things changed a little bit because we were trying to be extra careful with sanitizing and things. Now that we've moved further through the pandemic and know that the, that's not um, as much of a concern with transmission of COVID, um, we're, we're reintegrating pieces that we feel like will be um, helpful in those kinds of times where kids really just need some comfort, whether it's with another person, with a little stuffy, or just you know space by themselves. Um, so a lot of it, a lot of the the trick is figuring out the timing for each child. Some some children need just physical presence. They need to sit next to someone, but they don't want to talk. And for those kids, that's what we do. Um, other kids need they need space away from everyone. And so we give them that space and make sure, of course, that they're in a safe environment. Um, and so in those moments, the job is to um, talk with the other kids and say, you know what, I think he needs some space right now. Let's give him some space until he's ready and he knows that he can come back and get some help when he's ready to talk. Um, so it's it's very nuanced. And this is where, um, I just think this is a great topic to highlight how teaching is such a craft and it's not um, it's not something you can read in a book or take a class and learn how to handle situations like that. It's, it's, it's about those connections and, um, and again, taking advantage of the tools that we have uh, is, is key and has made it, has made our job a lot easier, you know, if we use those tools and, um, and, and give those tools to the kids too. So you're teaching these super important concepts to these kids, but you're also doing it in German, obviously. But yeah. how has the pandemic impacted and this fluctuation between modes of learning and everything? How has that impacted their own language learning? Yeah, um, that's it, it's a, a little bit it remains to be seen, I think. Um, but certainly we we have um, we we do see that I think the it, it takes a bit longer for students to learn certain words. Um, I mean, just with like the enunciation piece, you know, you have there's a lot more need to repeat things. Just, I mean, I my I've had my ears tested so many times, and they tell me I don't need hearing aids, but I I absolutely do not think that's true. <laughs> the pandemic has really tested it for me, and I know for all of us. I mean, it's just so much harder to hear in general. When you're working with young children, I mean, especially those who are shy, it's it requires a lot of patience and slowing down. Um, in some ways, that has maybe helped us with immersion at the very basic level. Um, in in that, it it's more effective when the simpler you can make things in any in any environment with um, with young children with you know learning basics of language. So in some ways, I think some we, we are doing some things a little bit better because we have to slow down. We have to make things really simple. Um, but yeah, I think it requires a lot more patience on the part of the teachers. And um, again, the kids, it's it's it will be fascinating to see how this plays out over the next several years. Um, they're so adaptable that I can't say we've we've seen you know, a huge increase in frustration on their part because they don't know any different. You know, it's, I mean, even the students that were, that are about to graduate and go off to kindergarten, 
they've been with us during part of the pandemic, almost from the beginning. Um, so, you know, we're doing our best. I would say that, you know, we strive to do everything in German. We have absolutely um, given ourselves the permission to not always do things in German when that's not, you know, feasible. And, and the social emotional piece is always one where, again, even pre-pandemic, we, we have conversations all the time about what is the give and take and when do we want to maybe have some conversations in English mindfully because we really want to um, go a little bit deeper with the students and have them, certainly when they express their own feelings, we allow that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, I think, you know, we, we had some moments where sometimes we'll, when we're outside, we don't necessarily always have masks on um, when we're playing outside. And it has been, we've had some moments where it's been interesting when a student hears and sees an, a word being spoken and then they repeat it. And it's maybe a word that they've been struggling with like for a long time. And then when they finally see your mouth, <laughs> they can say it. So um, yeah, but again, overall, I, I think um, we're just doing the best we can. And it's, it's really, you know, we, we will, um, we will be catching up, so to speak, in, in whatever ways we need to um, after this all, but, but the kids, I, we see learning every day, you know, and, and we're, we're together and we're in person and we feel like that is so, so important. And um, we do the best we can with the language. We still feel really great about the program, you know, that we've got going and I, it's, we, when we hear stories all the time about kids using German in the funniest situations when they're at home from things they picked up at, at Kinderstube. So that's always great to hear. So in, in the vein of, uh, thank a teacher today um i think particularly in the last two years where parents had their children at home a little bit more frequently and perhaps more persistently than under normal circumstances uh did you find an uptick in teacher appreciation simply by parents i think uh, understanding what it means to actually um, manage someone who is uh, four years old and has energy that usually only comes out of a coffee pot yeah um I think uh, absolutely. I mean, our, our, we have been so blessed since the very beginning of this all um, with our families and the community. We've always had a really tight knit community. Um, our families have been so supportive of just all of the measures that we've taken to, to keep everyone safe. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we, you know, there are certainly, I think that families do do think about how important the how important the role of teachers are for their young children we get you know little notes little words of kindness um in responses to emails um and every once in a while we we use a an app um messaging system with our families and um and every once in a while just the nicest things come thing comes through um and it might not even be in response to anything. It's just a, a thank you. And it's it's more than just, hey, thank you guys, but it's like some really specific words of kindness. And that's really wonderful and, and really is a big boost to see. Last year, we during Teacher Appreciation Week, um, because we couldn't do things the way that we normally do, we set up a sign up. Um, so we, the leadership team kind of thought of themes for each day, like bagel and cream cheese day, coffee day, lunch day. Um, and then we made it, we created a sign up and, and just 
decided, let's see what the families would like to do. And uh, there was so much generosity and, and the families at both sites, so in Minneapolis and in St. Paul. Um, and I think the first few days, the teachers didn't quite understand that it was all parents contributing. And then when we and then we're like, oh, we need to like put names on these things. And so we uh, communicated that a little bit better and they were just blown away and it felt, it just, it felt so wonderful. You know, it, it can be the simple thing, but just, you know, having chocolate and fruit that's been cut up by, by a Kinderstube parent and brought in um, to show appreciation, um, it was great. And I felt I, the, the families really enjoyed being able to do that and the teachers definitely felt seen and appreciated. So, yeah. <laughs> If you look at it from, again, sort of the, the management perspective, if you will, knowing your kids, uh, knowing your teaching staff, I know that we are usually are looking for assistance in one way or another. What makes a great German Kinderstube teacher? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, I think today my answer, my first answer is patience. <laughs> um, <laughs> patience is definitely needed in any, uh, at any level of education, I think. Um, openness to learning new things, because not only do we, I mean, we definitely have a strong sense of mission and um, vision of what we want our preschool to look and feel like, but we also are constantly looking outward. We want to learn new things and we want to grow as a, um, as a school and as a team. Um, so that, yeah, openness to learn new things and also openness to, like you said, uh, Gunther, I mean, I just, just passed around another Brene Brown vulnerability TED talk <laughs> to our team not too many weeks ago. Um, openness to be vulnerable and make mistakes. I mean, I think, again, that that is kind of should be a pillar of any educator's mantra, but but especially when you're learning and teaching a new language. Um, you cannot learn a new language without making mistakes. And in an immersion setting, if we go around correcting people's mistakes, we're going to just not go very far with it. So, um, you know, being open to making mistakes, both with language, with, you know, moments with students. I mean, you just have to get, get back up and try again. Um, and dedication, of course, you know, um, we find, I mean, we've been, we've been really blessed with a group of teachers. Um, you know, we, of course, we say goodbye to some teachers as they move on, but we also have a, a foundation of, of some uh, core staff that have been with us for quite a few many years. Um, and that really, uh, I, it, it speaks to the program and it speaks to the community, so. To the, to the parents and the guardians and the families out there that have been with their kids more than ever before, at home, do you have any tips for them to, whether it be education-wise or just managing maybe the bounds of energy and <laughs> all the fun things that come with having a three to six-year-old, really? Yeah, that's, oh my gosh, that's such a good question. Um, I think, I think that focusing, again, this is something that I, um, I have been really working hard on throughout the pandemic for myself to be able to continue to come to work and, and do the job that I want to do and, and need to do for the teachers and for the parents and the, um, the, all of the families and the students. Um, making sure that you're taking care of yourself, of course. So focusing on self-care, um, 
not taking things too seriously. <laughs> so not worrying too much if you feel like your child is um, misbehaving or, you know, I, I just think it's so important. Growth is messy and it's hard and it is painful, but it's also really fun. And I think trying to to stay in the mindset or shift your mindset to, to see just the, um, the joyfulness of being with young children and the joyfulness that, that is like early childhood. And, um, I think it's, it's really easy to worry about a lot of things these days, but to, to try and, I mean, the worry is not going to help any of us. So really trying to stay positive and open and, and ask for help when you need help. I think that's, you know, something again, that has really, um, Ha helped me feel very dedicated to working in early childhood during this pandemic is that there there we have so much of a, a safety network within our community and you know all of us need help and none of us can do it on our own so just um remembering to yeah like reach out to other people whether it's teachers um or other parents um other family members for help when you need it um but yeah not to stay too serious <laughs> So much to talk about. Uh, in yeah. the interest of time, particularly respecting yours, I just want to say, you know, from one spectrum of the educator to the other spectrum of the educator, we are sort of uh, bridging, if you will, the entire age range. You with kindergarten, yeah. I'm in the university setting. Thank you for everything you're doing. I have no concept whatsoever what it truly takes to essentially be managing, teaching, guiding those, those little souls. Your work and the work of your team is outrageously outstanding. So thank you very much for, for everything. Thank you. Good to <laughs> Thanks, Andra. <laughs> and thank you. it was good to see you. We'll certainly check in with you again in the probably near future because this, this has been too long. So mm -hmm. until next time, Emily, thank you so much. Yep. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> And that was it for this episode of Here and There, the podcast of the Germanic American Institute. As always, thank you for joining us. Please do visit our website at gaimn.org. Familiarize yourself with all the events that we have going on, with all the classes that are starting, with all the opportunities that you find. And if you have any questions, of course, please do email us at podcast at gaimn.org. And last but not least, we extend the request to you to please rate us on your favorite podcast player. And in case we are not worthy of a five-star review, please let us know why and how we can improve to earn a five-star rating from you. Once again, your suggestions are always appreciated at podcast at And we'll hear you again soon. Until then, tschüss.